We uh, continue in our series in the book of 2 Samuel this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to turn there. If uh, you want a copy of the scriptures, feel free to grab one from the back table. If you want to just listen as we read, feel free to do that. We'll get there in a second. Do you guys remember the story of uh, the, the plane, I don't think it was a United plane or whatever it was, that had to land in the Hudson River? You remember that story? Yeah, Captain Sullenberger or whatever his name was, Sully. Well, you remember, remember they made a movie about this? It came out like, what, four or five years ago or something like that? I don't know. I just watched it like a couple of weeks ago because I'm late to these things. Don't get on me. And realized, maybe for the first time, I, I might have read it before, that the whole cause of this was birds, right? Now, you know, because you know me, that I've got a real problem with this, right? Birds are always in the way. But here's what was interesting to me about how this whole storyline played out, if I followed the the plot correctly. Birds, there's a bird strike, which I guess is somewhat common uh, in planes. That's kind of terrifying, actually, to think about it. And at the bird strike, they realized that the engine was gone, and the plan was to turn around and go back to the airport. There had been this incident that was significant enough that they needed to regroup and go back. But quickly, uh, as they were going on, things escalated and got worse, and he realized he had to land the plane in a river. And as we get into 2 Samuel chapter 13, we have something kind of like that, except it doesn't end as nicely uh, as that story does. What seemed, or what seemed like a huge deal in chapter 11 and chapter 12, but yet it seemed like God was going to restore and repair it, now in chapter 13 is just going to go crazy. The things are getting awful and and terrible and worse, and everything is out of control. If you read ahead, you know that where we're going this morning is not pleasant territory. Uh, And So I appreciate if in your reading ahead you prayed for me and figuring out how we're going to do this. So 2 Samuel chapter 13, let's read this. This is what the storyteller says. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Okay, so this is his half-sister. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimeah, David's brother. This would be Amnon's cousin, David's nephew. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon. 
Notice how often the storyteller is saying, brother and sister, he wants us to know just how gross what's happening is. Who was lying down, she took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. She took the pan and served him the bread but refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here to my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon into his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where can I get rid of my disgrace? And, and what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. The word fools is a nice and easy translation. The word is really perverts. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But Amnon refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than her, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door behind her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house. A desolate woman. When King David heard about all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated him because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. That a story like this is in the pages of Scripture is chilling. This is revolting and disgusting. And so as we journey through this, I hope that we can begin to see some of the reasons for the storyteller putting this in here. First reason I think the storyteller puts this story in is he wants us to hear Tamar. All of the men in the story are not hearing her. They could care less about her, quite frankly. And the storyteller wants us to hear her. Her words are right in the center. And in the story, especially in, in, in the way they were written in old times, to put them in the center is to make them the, the crucial point of the whole story. Listen to her plead for her purity and truly for her life. Pleading with Amnon and to no avail. 
Friends, can I just say something at the outset? I mean, this is pretty low-hanging fruit here, and yet, for whatever reason, in society and the church, we fail to understand this. Just because there are stories in the Old Testament of the mistreatment of women does not make it okay for men to lord themselves over women. The mistreatment and the repression of women is not only not good, it is sinful and wrong. Simply because stories are recorded or because stories of antiquity when things weren't as God intended them to be are put there does not make them okay for how we would behave now. And yet... It's taken until what? 2018 for a Me Too movement to break out. This is troubling in our world. And that in the church, some of the greatest repression of women still exists. This is wrong. And the storyteller, even though he does not say it in clear words, wants us to hear Tamar's Tamar's voice to realize that those with what is seemed to be societal power have great responsibility to lift up the weaker and not to lord it over them. And men, whatever society may say about us, it is our job to empower women in our midst, not to repress them. Hear the voice of Tamar. The second thing I think the storyteller wants us to do is he wants us to look at four men. Right? There are not just one man screwing up royally here. There's these stories of four men who are pigs, who screw up big time. Right? Four men and one virtuous woman. There used to be a show on TV, like three men, a woman, and a pizza shop or something like that. So this is like four pigs, a virtuous woman, and a palace. Right? This is what's going on here. Uh, and Amnon is front and center, but there's three other dudes who are just as bad as him. So let's just step by step walk through these and try to at least learn a lesson from each of them. What I would suggest to you is none of the four men who are mentioned here care at all about Tamar. They only care about themselves. So the first is Amnon. And all four of these men are using power inappropriately. Right? So this is what we need to begin to think about for us. What does it mean for us to use power inappropriately? Amnon, of course, is pictured as someone who has fallen deeply in love with his half-sister. Uh, so much so that, that he is becoming physically sick about it. Now we know, because we've just read the story, that he's not in love with her at all. Right? He's got male impulses and and, and desires and lusts that are so consuming him that he's sick over it. You can't move from true and unabated love to hatred in, in that matter of moments. This is all about power and conquering and taking what he wants. Listen to the verbs that are attributed to Amnon. It says he wanted to do something to her. Did you read that? And this is disgusting. And then it says he grabbed her. And then it literally says he laid her. And then it says he told her to get out. What we can't see in that text is actually the storyteller purposely does not use a feminine pronoun. It uses a neuter pronoun. So 
most literally what he says to her is, to his guards, is get it out of here. This isn't love. This is power and conquest and another notch in his belt and doing whatever he needs to do to take what he wants. After all, this is what his dad did, right? And here we have it. And so I wonder sometimes, though hopefully we never find ourselves in the predicament of Amnon and Tamar, if we are, as people are prone to use the positions of power or status to get what we want from people who are weaker than us. Storyteller, I think, would ask that question. And then we move on past Amnon to this guy, Jonadab. And Jonadab is Amnon's cousin. He's David's nephew. And Jonadab is actually the man who comes up with the plot for how to make all of this happen. Right? Amnon's sick to his stomach because <clears throat> he can't do anything to her because he's a, she's a virgin. Everyone will know that something has happened. He really doesn't care about the, the incestual part of the rape that he's planning. And Jonadab, when Amnon confesses to him how he's feeling instead of dealing with it in an appropriate way, tells him how he can go about fulfilling the lusts of his flesh. It says of him that he was shrewd. He was a strategy man. He was the guy that came up with the plan. At the very least, Jonadab is complicit in what happens to Tamar. There's one of two reasons I would propose to you that Jonadab would do what he's doing here. One is... Because this is the old boys club, and boys want to be boys and do what they want to do, and he's egging on a guy who has a similar desire set to him. Or, and I think this one might even be likely more true, Amnon is what appears to be the crown prince. When David is gone, Amnon is going to be in charge. And what better way to grease the skids for a position of power for a guy like Jonadab than to be the man who can help Amnon get what he wants. And so maybe the storyteller asks us this morning, how do we tend to use our influence in the world? To acquire new power or position, or to point people in the right direction? And then thirdly, we come to David himself. Did you catch the one sentence about David? David heard about this. And he was furious. And it's left there on purpose because he does nothing about it. Except get mad about it. Imagine having that guy as your dad. Works out good for Amnon, not so good for Tamar. But we should not be surprised about this in the life of David. Because time after time, he has delivered justice only to those who who by delivering justice to them can advance his kingly power more, right? The Amalekites and the people like that. But when it comes time to, to have justice on men like Joab, who deserved it, or here Amnon, his own son, he doesn't do it because it's not, I would suggest to you, politically expedient. It's not easy to seek justice. It's just about getting angry. Church, If truth is truth, then we as a church and as followers of Jesus need to speak truth. Even in the most uncomfortable of circumstances and situations. And I would suggest to you that the church, capital C, proper, has a big problem 
with not defending victims and instead overextending grace to predators. And we see it all the way back in the roots of the church in a man like David. And then we move on to Absalom, who seems like the best person in this storyline, right? Because after all, he's mad about what happened to his sister. Uh, and he's going to, as the story goes on, we didn't read the whole chapter, you can, you can read it later, he, he plots and kills Amnon for what he did, right? And so some might look at the story and say, well, at least someone was thinking about Tamar. <clears throat> but if you think that Absalom was thinking about Tamar, then you don't know anything about Absalom, right? Did you hear what she said to her? He knew exactly what happened, didn't he? And he said, don't tell anyone, right? Now, why would he say this? Don't tell anyone. And it waited maybe two years until he exacted vengeance on Amnon. Because Absalom wants Amnon's position, I think, right? And he's going to seize on this opportunity to grab power from Amnon as the firstborn of David. And so he plots a way to make it happen. And what we're going to see is out of this over the next couple of chapters is a great rebellion that Absalom leads to seize power. Absalom leads to seize power even from his dad's reign. None of these four men care about Tamar. Now listen, whether Absalom, you might say, is, is seeking vengeance for someone who's wronged, or whether he's using it uh, for political expediency to gain power as he wants it. Either way, he is suggesting that the answer to the problem that Tamar has is Absalom. You see that? See how self-serving and disgusting that is? And instead of being someone who points to justice and works on behalf of the victim, he is going to take it into his own hands, and it's why it doesn't work out so well. I love the picture of John the Baptist, right? When the Pharisees and the leaders come to him and they say, are you the answer to our problems? I'm summarizing there. He says, no, not me, but there's one who's coming. And Martin Luther says about John the Baptist that we know John the Baptist because of his finger that points to Jesus. And Absalom's got a finger that points to himself. What about us? Are we quick to suggest that we can be the solution to problems? Or let me make it a little personal. Are we quick to suggest that we can be at least the solution to our own problems? And so in examining these four men, we see the worst of the worst. And actually, we see the very fulfillment of what God promised would happen way back before David was even anointed king. When the Israelites were clamoring for a king, do you remember this in 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 8, I think. They're clamoring for a king. We need a king. We need to be like the rest of the, uh, of the nations of the world. We need to be like the rest of the kingdoms. We need a king, someone who will lead us in battle, someone who by his presence will make us marked people, and, and our, our neighbors will have to respect us. And God says, Samuel's upset about this. They're rejecting me, God. And God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're actually rejecting me. It's not enough for God to be their defender, for God to be the one by whom they're marked. And this is what God says to them. You might want a king, do you? Here's what kings do. They take your sons, and they take 10% of your crops, 
and they lord it over you, and they take, and they take, and they take, and they take, and they don't give. And the people say, no, 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 that will never, ever happen. And here we go in the godly King David's reign where the kings are taking instead of leading the people. And those two things are important. But I think the third thing that I want to tell you, that the storyteller wants us to tell us, is really the point of this whole story. It's the reason this story is included and not, if I were the editor, omitted from the story. And that is because the storyteller wants us to see just how quickly sin hops down the generational line. You see it? He promised David that he had unleashed all that David had unleashed all kinds of evil because of his sin. And then in the very next chapter, we see it lived out in front of us, jumping off the pages of scriptures. An exact repeat of what David had just done. Right? Raping a defenseless woman who did not provoke it of her own accord. David to Bathsheba, Amnon to Tamar. Discarding a woman after you'd used her for what you wanted. David to Bathsheba, Amnon to Tamar. Concocting a plot and and, and designing a scheme to cover things up. Jonadab to Amnon, to Amnon to David in the same way David had done it to Uriah. And it all leads to murdering a brother. Absalom kills Amnon and David kills his brother-in-arms, the closest of friends, Uriah. What dad does, sons do. Do you see this? And this should grab us. Generational sin is not just theory. The Bible asserts that it is true, and through the stories it tells, it tells us it is true. In Exodus chapter 20, in Exodus chapter 34, and other places throughout Scripture, God says that the sin of one man is visited again on the third and even the fourth generation. That sin moves down the line. And we see it not just here in David and Amnon and Absalom, but we see it even earlier in the book of Genesis. When Abraham, this godly man who God had called to start his people, when there is famine in the land and he has to go to Egypt, I would suggest to you he shouldn't have gone to Egypt. Other people might disagree with that. He goes down there, and what does he do? Do you remember the story? He's like, my wife is pretty beautiful. Things could get dicey down here. So I want you to tell the Egyptians that you're my sister. And Pharaoh takes her as his own wife. And then God rains plagues down on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, why did you lie to me? Why did you deceive me? Chapters later, Abraham's son Isaac has to go to Egypt. I would suggest to you he doesn't have to go to Egypt, but he does what his dad does. And he looks at his wife and says, this could be problems for us. You know what he does? He said, you tell him that you're not my wife, you're my sister. And the exact same thing happens again. And chapters later, Isaac has a son, Jacob, and Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, plan a whole scheme to deceive their dad, to steal the birthright from the brother Esau. This deception that moves all the way down and gets worse and worse and worse, so much so that David is called a, excuse me, that Jacob is called a deceiver. 
Do you see it? And oh, by the way, Jacob goes where when famine comes? To Egypt. I would suggest to you he shouldn't have gone to Egypt. And here's why I would suggest to you. Because now in the third generation, God says, if you like Egypt so much, why don't you make bricks for them for 400 years? Right? And they're enslaved to Egypt until God delivers them through Moses. Do you see this storyline, how it's painted out? Now stop for a minute and be honest with yourself. What are the generational sins in your family of origin? You know them, right? Because they're alive and well in your life. It is easy to pass the buck and say, well, that's just kind of who we are. No. It's who you've allowed yourself to become. Jacob was a deceiver because his dad was. And his dad was a deceiver because his dad introduced it to the family line. In the same way, families are plagued by unthinkable things like abuse and pornography and adultery and deception and lying. And even the more subtle things that seem not so bad. How exactly this happens, we don't exactly know. Is it transferred seminally? There's some sense that the Bible might suggest that. Is it through osmosis and nurture? That makes a whole lot of sense to me. Right? You see the, the, how life is lived and you begin to adapt it for yourself. It should not surprise us that Amnon is just like his daddy. Because he has done nothing to step in a new direction. But church, there's something bigger. Because this is not just an echo from chapter 13 back to chapter 11. It's actually an echo all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That there's even bigger reality of the generational passing through of sin. All the way back to the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. Amnon takes a forbidden woman. Adam and Eve take forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve are led astray by a serpent who is called crafty. Do you know what the word shrewd means in Hebrew? Crafty. Jonadab is crafty, just like the serpent. We hear echoes of what's going on here. And then in the story of the garden, the man and the woman, after they take and they eat, they look and they see that they're naked. They're ashamed. They cover themselves. They hide from God. In the same way, even though Amnon is not ashamed because sin has sprung so badly, Tamar's story is a story of shame. Ornate robes, beauty, should she be put forward as the pinnacle of what it means to be human? And she tears them and puts ashes on her face, completely ashamed, lives a desolate life. And then a couple years after the sin in the garden, remember what happens? A brother kills a brother, doesn't he? And we have the same thing here in 2 Samuel chapter 13. You know, I think the natural outcome of sin is hatred amongst men, right? Mankind, not just men. Men, women, women and women, women towards men, men towards women. That fratricide is the natural outcome of these realities. And so the storyteller wants us to see these deep echoes to our past, 
towards the ones who have come before us and how they have given to us a line of rebellion, a line of walking away from God's good and whole life and existence, pursuing rebellion that looks like it will bring happiness and pleasure, but leads to emptiness in the same way that Amnon thought grabbing Tamar would bring every fulfillment to life and when he was done was empty and wanted rid of her. And so, friends, we are left with a big problem. Because it's not just a king who is sinful now and needs the restoration of a gracious God. It is a whole line and a whole kingdom that is left in shambles. Because don't you see... The kingdom of David was meant to be the epitome of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Finally, the people had numbered uh, the numbers of the stars. Finally, they were governing themselves. Finally, they had established and, and filled out to the full boundaries of the land that God had promised. And now a tragic fall had left it shattered. And we look to the future for a son of David. In the same way in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. And as it was supposed to be, God looked on his creation and said, it is very good. And then a fall leaves it broken. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is what God says as he's doling out curses. He says, though from the woman will come a seed. And though the serpent, as he has misled the woman, will strike at the heel of the seed of the woman, ultimately this seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent who leads the people astray. In 2 Samuel 13, we look for a son of David. In Genesis chapter 3, we look for a seed of the woman. And this morning, we look at a tomb that is empty. And we have found the son of David. And we have found the seed of the woman. Jesus is his name. He is the ultimate king. And he is our final rescuer. And through his work and victory on the cross. And through his resurrection. He has not only won a great victory. But he has launched a whole New family. Do you see this? And this is the hope that we need when we read a passage like 2 Samuel 13, or when we stop and consider the crumbling nature of our own lives. We have such great expectations and desires for what we want to be, and then we look at our lives and think, gosh, what happened? In the same way. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. He's the, therefore, sin entered the world through, listen to this, one man, right? And death through sin, and all this death came to all these people because now all have sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam all the way through Moses, even over those who did not sin. 
because it was passed down. Adam became the pattern of a one who was to come. Listen, but the gift of God is not like the trespass of Adam. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, whose name is Jesus, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many sins and brought justification to all. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, listen, reign in life through the one man, Jesus? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. You have a new family. Who is your one man? Right? We get it, Adam. We go all the way back. Adam instituted sin in all of the world. I'm named after him. And, and, and sin is, is propagated through all the world. But I want you to focus a little closer. In your family, in your life, in your family of origin, or in your life, what are the generational sins? Or what are the sins that are really gripping you right now? Because I would suggest to you, you have a choice. You can either say, that's who we are. Or you can decide for it to end now. And the way that it decides for it to end now, certainly without perfection, is to, by faith, receive life that comes from a new family code or ethos. That you, by faith, step out of the Adam family and into the Jesus family. You step out of your family of origin and into the family of God. And this is the great hope that has been made known and possible to us through the work of Jesus. Three things. When you think about generational sin or the sin that grips you. The first thing you must do is acknowledge it. You've got to name it. When you name something, you exercise authority and power over it. By naming something, it no longer hides in the darkness. You expose it to the light. And the process of freedom and liberation begins. You name it. And then the second thing you do is you take responsibility for it. Yes, there have been generations of your family that have dealt with this. Or yes, there are multitudes of people that deal with the same thing. But in those multitudes stands you. This is yours just as much as it is theirs. And we own it. And then, by faith, 
we step forward into the new life that is ours through the family of God. This is how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 3. You take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. Do you know anyone who wears the same clothes every single day and never washes them? What would that be like? And yet, for many of us, we choose to live in the same way, day after day, moment after moment, even though the happiness that we think these old clothes will bring us has been announced and verified as only being found in the new family that Jesus has paved the way for us to join. You can be the one who breaks the generational sin. You can be the one who renounces the grip of sin on you. You know how you can be that one? By finally declaring that you are not the answer to the problem. And instead, pointing your finger to the one who is the seed of the woman and the son of David, who on the cross was bitten by the serpent, but through the resurrection has crushed his head and won victory for everyone. A new family embraces you, where life is not only possible, And not only probable, but promised to be true. Put on the new clothes of the gospel and live the new life that God calls you to. Can I pray with you?